Chapter Twenty Nine of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Nine. There's no smoke in the chimney, and the rain beats on the floor. There's no glass in the window. There's no wood in the door. The heather grows behind the house, and the sand lies before. No hand hath trained the ivy. The walls are grey and bare. The boats upon the sea sail by, nor ever tarry there. No beast of the field comes nigh, nor any bird of the air. Mary Coleridge It was black dark inside the house, instead of the white darkness outside. Knocking Annette carefully against pieces of furniture, Roger guided her down a narrow passage into what felt like a room. Near the ceiling were two bars of white where the fog looked in over the tops of the shutters. He struck another match, and a little chamber revealed itself, with faded carpet and a long mirror. But no sooner was it seen than it was gone. "'Did you see that chair near you?' said Roger. "'I haven't many matches left.' "'There's a candle on the mantelpiece,' she said. Roger was amazed at Annette's cleverness. He had not seen it himself, but she had. He exulted in the thought. He lit it, and the poor little tall drawing-room came reluctantly into view, with its tarnished mirror from which the quicksilver had ebbed, and its flowered wallpaper over which the damp had scrawled its own irregular patterns. The furniture was of the kind that expresses only one idea, and that a bad one. The foolish sofa, with a walnut backbone showing through a slit in its chintz cover, had a humped excrescence at one end like an uneasy chair, and the other four chairs had servilely imitated this hump, and sunk their individuality, if they ever had any, to be a walnut sweet. At last fronted Chiffonnier had done its horrid best to be in keeping with the sweet. On the walls were a few prints of racehorses stretched out towards a winning-post, and steel engravings of the Emperor of the French in an order, and the Empress Eugenie, all smiles and ringlets, served as pendants to two engravings of stags by Langsia. Annette took off Roger's coat and laid it on a chair. "'Someone has been very unhappy here,' she said, below her breath. Roger did not hear her. He was drawing together the litter of waste paper in the grate, and then, careful man, having ascertained with the poker that the register was open, he set a light to it. The dancing, garish firelight made the sense of desolation acute. "'Who lived here?' said Annette. Roger hesitated a moment, and then said, a Mrs. Dean. Was she very old? Not very, not more than twenty-seven. And is she dead? Roger put some more paper on the fire, and held it down with the poker. No, she's left. Her child died here a month ago. Poor soul. Her only child? Yes. And her husband, is he dead too? Roger thought for a moment, and then said slowly, As good as dead. He looked round the room, and added, "'Dick Manvers lent her the house. It used to be the agent's, but no one has lived in it since I can remember. It has always been to let furnished, but no one ever took it. People seem to think it is rather out of the way.' The rollicking, busy flame died down, and left them in the candlelight once more. But after a few moments the ghostly pallor above the shutters deepened. Roger went to them and opened them. They fell back, creaking, revealing a tall French window. The fog was eddying past, showing the tops of the clumps of firs, and then hiding them anew. He gazed intently at the drifting waves of mist. 
"'The wind is shifting,' he said. "'It will blow from the land directly, and then the roke will go. "'I shall run down to the farm and bring the dog-cart up here.' "'After all, he should have to propose in the dog-cart. "'Men must have proposed and been accepted in dog-carts before now. "'Anyhow, he could not say anything in this house "'when he remembered who had lived here "'and the recent tragedy enacted within its walls. "'You must put on your coat again,' she said, bringing it to him. "'And mayn't I come with you?' "'Wouldn't that be better than bringing the cart up here?' "'Oh, Merrylegs can see anywhere. "'Besides, there's the ford. "'I doubt you could get over it dry shod, "'and I shall have to go a couple of miles round. "'And you've had walking enough. "'I shan't be gone more than half an hour. "'I dare say by then the sun will be full out.' "'I would rather come with you. "'You're not afraid to stay here, are you? "'There's nothing to hurt you, and that candle will last an hour. "'I don't believe there's even a live mouse in the place.' "'I'm sure there isn't.' "'Everything here is dead and broken-hearted. "'I'd rather go with you.' Roger's face became the face of a husband, obstinacy personified. She did not realise that they had been in danger, that he had felt anxiety for her, and that he had no intention of being so acutely uncomfortable again, if he could help it. "'You'll stay quietly here,' he said doggedly. "'This is the most comfortable chair.' She sat down meekly in it at once, and smiled at him, not displeased at being dragooned. He smiled back and was gone. She heard him go cautiously along the passage and open and shut the front door. The light was increasing steadily, and a few minutes after he had left the house the sun came pallidly out, and a faint breeze stirred the tops of the fir-trees. Perhaps this was the land-breeze of which he had spoken. A sense of irksomeness and restlessness laid hold on her, she turned from the window and wandered into the little entrance hall, and unbarred a shutter to see if Roger were coming back. But no one was in sight on the long, straight, moss-rutted road that led to the house. She peered into the empty kitchen, and then, seeing a band of sunlight on the staircase, went up it. Perhaps she could see Roger from one of the upper windows. But there were no shutters on them. She glanced into one after another of the little cluster of dishevelled bedrooms, with crumpled newspapers left over from a hurried packing still strewing the floors. The furniture was massive, early Victorian, not uncomfortable, but darfully ugly. There was one fair-sized south bedroom, and on the window-sill was a young starling with outspread grimy wings. Annette ran to open the window, but as she did so she saw that it was dead, had died beating against the glass trying to get out into the sunshine, after making black smirches on the walls and ceiling. Everything in this one room was gay and pretty. The curtains and bed-hangings were of rosebud chintz. Perhaps the same hand that had made them had collected from the other rooms the old swinging mirror with brass rosettes, and the chest of drawers with drop-handles, and the quaint painted chairs. Annette saw the crib in the corner. This room had been the nursery. It was here, no doubt, that Mrs. Dean had watched her child die. Some of the anguish of the mother seemed to linger in the sunny room with its rose-coloured curtains, and something, alas, more terrible than grief, had left its traces there. A devastating hand, a fierce destructive anger, had been at work. Little pictures had evidently been torn down from the wall and flung into the fire. The fireplace was choked high with half-burned debris, small shoes, pinafores, and toys. A bit of a child's linen picture-book had declined to burn, and hung forlornly through the bars, showing a comic picture of Mrs. Pig 
driving home from market. A green wheel had become unfastened and had rolled into the middle of the room when the wooden horse and cart were thrust into the fire. "'She must have cried all the time,' said Annette to herself, and she shivered. She remembered her own mad impulse of destruction. "'It's no use being angry,' she whispered to the empty walls. "'No use, no use.' The photograph frames had evidently been swept into the fire too, all but one, for there was broken glass in the fender and on the floor. But one framed photograph stood on the mantelpiece, the man in it, smiling and debonair, looking gaily out at Annette and the world in general. Under it was written in a large, clear hand, Daddy. It was Dick Leggett, but younger and handsomer than Annette had ever known him. She looked long at it, slowly realising that this, then, had been the home of Dick's mistress, the Mary of whom he had spoken, and her child, to whom he had done a tardy justice in his will, the will she had helped him to make. The child, Dick's child, was dead. Its empty crib was in the corner. Its memorials had perished with it. All that was left now of that little home was Dick's faded photograph, smiling in its frame, purposely, vindictively left, when all the others had been destroyed. Mary Dean had not cared to take it with her when she cut herself adrift from her past. She had not had the clemency to destroy it with the rest. She had left it to smile mockingly across the ruins of the deserted nursery. While Annette stood motionless, the fierce despair of the mother became almost visible to her. The last wild look round the room and at the empty crib, the eyes averted from the smiling face on the mantelpiece, and then the closed door and the lagging, hurrying footfall on the stairs. "'It's no use being angry,' she whispered again. "'Even Dick knew that. "'No use, no use.' "'And with pitying hands she took Dick's photograph out of the frame "'and tore it up small and thrust the pieces "'among the charred remains of his child's toys. "'It was all she could do for him. "'Oh, if she had but known Mary Dean, "'if she could have but have come to her and put her arms round her "'and told her that Dick had not been as heartless as she thought, "'that he had remembered her at the last,' and as far as he could had made a late amends for all the evil he had done her. But the child was dead, and Mary Dean herself was gone. Gone with her. She had flung away in anger and despair, as she, Annette, had once flung away. Perhaps there had been no Mrs. Stoddart to care for Mary in her hour of need. Annette's heart sank, as if a cold hand had been laid upon it. The peaceful, radiant faith and joy of a few hours ago, where were they now? In their place, into this close, desolate room with the dead bird on the sill, came an overwhelming fear. Men were cruel, ruthless creatures, who did dreadful things to women under the name of love. As at a great distance, far, far away in the depths of childhood, she heard her mother sobbing in the dark. Almost her only recollection of her mother was being waked in the night by that passionate sobbing. The remembrance of her father came next, sordid, good-humoured, mercenary, and she shuddered. No wonder her mother had cried so bitterly. Close behind it followed the sensitive, sensual face of the musician who had offered to train her, and then, sudden and overwhelming, blotting out everything else, came the beautiful young lover whom she had cast forth from her heart with passion a year ago. 
all the agony and despair which she had undergone, then surged back upon her, seemed to rush past her to join forces with the cold desolation lingering in the empty room. Annette hid her face in her hands. She put it all behind her. She had outlived it. But the sudden remembrance of it shook her like a leaf. In that grim procession, Dick came last. Poor, poor Dick. He had not been wicked, but he had done wicked things. He had betrayed and broken faith. He had made as much desolation and anguish as if he had been hard-hearted. Oh, why did women love men? Why did they trust them? Annette stood a long time with her face in her hands. Then she went out and closed the door behind her. The sun was shining bravely, and she longed to get out of this death-shadowed house into the warm, living sunshine. She went back to the drawing-room, her quiet step echoing loudly down the passage, and looked out of the long window. But the outlook was not calculated to lessen her oppression. Close at hand, as she knew, were gracious expanses of sea and sky and gleaming river. But a stone wall surrounded the house, and on the top of it a tall wooden fence had been erected, so high that from the ground floor you could not look over it. This wooden fence came up close to the house on every side, so close that there was only just room for the thin firs and a walnut tree to grow within the narrow enclosure, their branches touching the windows. Annette did not know that the wall and the fence and the trees were there to protect the house from the east wind, which in winter swept with arctic ferocity from the sea. In the narrow strip between the fenced wall and the house, Mary Dean had tried to make a little garden. Vain effort. The walnut tree and the firs took all sun from the strip of flower-bed against the wall of the house, where a few Michaelmas daisies and snapdragons hung their heads. She trained a rose against the wall, but it clung more dead than alive, its weak shoots slipping down from its careful supports. She made a gravel path beside it, and a paced up and down it. How worn and sunk that path was! There was not room for two to go abreast in it. One footfall had worn that narrow groove, narrow almost as a sheep-track in the marsh. And now the path was barely visible for the dead leaves of the walnut, falling untimely, which had drifted across it, and had made an eddy over the solitary clump of yellow snapdragon. Annette drew back the bolt of the window and stepped out. The air, chilled with the mist which had silvered everything, was warm compared to the atmosphere of the house. She drew a long breath, and her mind, never accustomed to dwell long upon herself, was instantly absorbed in freeing the snapdragon from the dead leaves which had invaded it. Two birds were bathing themselves sedulously in the only sunny corner at the end of the garden. Annette saw that their bath also was choked with leaves, and when she had released the snapdragon, she applied her energies to the bird's bath. But she had hardly removed a few leaves from it when she stopped short. It was a day of revelations. The bird's bath was really a lake, a miniature lake with rocks in it, and three tin fishes, rather too large, it must be owned, to be quite probable, and a tin frog spread out in a swimming attitude, and four ducks all jostling each other in its small expanse. It was a well-stocked lake. Tears rose in Annette's eyes as she explored still farther, lifting the drifted leaves gently, one by one. They covered a doll's garden, about a yard square. Someone, not a child, had loved that garden, 
and have made it for a beloved child. The enclosure with its two-inch fence had no grass in it, but it had winding walks marked with sand and tiny white stones, and it had a little avenue of French lavender which was actually growing, and which led to the stone steps on the top of which the house stood, flanked by shells. It was a wooden house, perhaps originally a box, of rather debased architecture, it must be conceded, but it had windows and a green door painted on it, and a chimney. On the terrace were two garden seats, evidently made out of matchboxes, and outside the fence was a realistic pigsty with two china pigs in it, and a water-butt, and a real haystack. Close at hand lay a speckled china cow, and near it was two seated crinkly white lambs. Annette, kneeling by the lake, crying silently, was so absorbed in tenderly clearing the dead leaves from the work of art, and in setting the cow on its legs again, that she did not hear a step on the path behind her. Roger had come back, and was watching her. When she discovered the two lambs sitting facing each other, she seized them up and kissed them, sobbing violently. Something in Annette's action vaguely repelled him as he watched her. It was what he would have defined as French. And though he had swallowed down the French father, he hated all symptoms of him in Annette. It was alien to him to kiss little china lambs. Janey would never have done that. And Janey was the test, the touchstone, of all that was becoming in woman. And then all in a moment the tiny wave of repulsion was submerged in the strong current of his whole being towards her. It was as if some dormant generous emotion had been roused and angered by his petty pinprick opposition to put out its whole strength and brush it away. "'Don't cry,' said Roger gruffly. But there were tears in his small round eyes as well as in hers. "'Oh, Roger,' said Annette, speaking to him for the first time by his Christian name, "'Have you seen it, the fishes and the ducks, and the pigsty, and the little lambs and everything?' Roger nodded. He watched that property in course of construction. He might have added that he had provided most of the animals for it. But if he had added that, he would not have been Roger. "'And she's burnt everything in the nursery,' continued Annette, rising and going to him, the tears running down her face. "'The toys and everything—' and she's torn down the little pictures from the wall, and broken them, and thrown them on the fire, and I think she only left the garden because—poor thing—because she forgot it. Roger did not answer. He took her in his arms, and said with gruff tenderness, as if to a child, "'Don't cry.' She leaned against him, and let his arms fold her to him. And as they stood together in silence, their hearts went out to each other, and awe fell upon them. All about them seemed to shake, the silvered firs, the pale sunshine, the melancholy house, the solid earth beneath their feet. "'You will marry me, won't you, Annette?' he said hoarsely. Remembrance rushed back upon her. She drew away from him, and looked earnestly at him with tear-dimmed, wistful eyes. The poor woman who had lived here, who had worn the little path on which they were standing, had loved Dick, but he had not married her. She herself, for one brief hour, had loved someone, but he had no thought of marrying her. Was Roger, after all, like other men? Would he also cast her aside when he knew all, weigh her in the balance, and find her not good enough to be his wife? There was a loud knocking at the door, and the bell pealed. It echoed through the empty house. 
Roger started violently. Annette did not move. So absorbed was she that she heard nothing, and continued gazing at him with unfathomable eyes. After one bewildered glance at her, he hurried into the house, and she followed him, half-dazed. In the hall she found him reading a telegram, while a dismounted groom held a smoking horse at the door. At the gate the dog-cart was waiting, tied to the gate-post. Roger crushed the telegram in his hand, and stared out of the window for a long moment. Then he said to Annette, "'Janie has sent me on this telegram to say her brother Dick is dead. It has been following me about for hours. I must go at once.' He turned to the groom. "'I'll take your horse, and you will drive Miss George's back to Noyes in the dog-cart.' The man held the stirrup, and Roger mounted, raised his cap gravely to Annette, turned his horse carefully in the narrow path, and was gone. End of chapter 29